welcome back to episode 14 of the Boundary Rider podcast. We are here, myself and Nick, outside the SCG, the Sydney Cricket Ground, after quite an incredible five days of test cricket. Nick, thank you for joining me here again. We have covered the last five days of test cricket action. It's had absolutely everything. I don't think you could have asked for more in a test match. I mean, this is your first test match covering a test cricket match here at the SCG. What, what did you make of it? Well, I think like Wolf Pukowski, I suppose I made my debut here today. It's the first time I've actually been at the ground. And as you said, it really was incredible. Putting it lightly, it was incredible. Um, I mean, leading into the final session, quite literally all four possible results um, were on offer there. Like, we didn't know what was going to happen. And... I mean, a superb effort from the Indian batsman towards the end there, and it does set up a, a really thrilling conclusion, hopefully, next week at the Gabra. Well, we are going to go through all of the big talking points out of this test match because there are a lot to go through, that is for sure. Um, we're going to go through some of the stuff that's happening in the Big Bash as well, but really, this test match has taken up most of the talking points. Before we get into it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We are on Apple and Spotify. As a motorbike goes racing down Driving Avenue, the crowds are gone, so you're going to pick up some of that background sound here. So yeah, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Apple and Spotify, where everywhere you might listen to your podcasts. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the lot, we are there. And if you haven't already listened to some of our other episodes, we caught up with Robolinda 2 last week, which is a fantastic interview. Cam Green, we spoke with early for our very first episode before he was a test cricketer, so that one was a great one. Hasn't but- he really gone through quite an exciting couple of months? I mean, he was... You know, someone who's just cementing his side in the WA team a, a couple of months ago, and all of a sudden he's one of Australia's most reliable middle order batsmen. <laughs> it's quite remarkable, really. And I mean, we can't take credit for it, but maybe we played some some small role in his success. Yeah, maybe a little bit, a little bit. Let's go through this Test match, Nick. Obviously, Australia versus India ended in a draw. Australia 338 and six for 312 declared. India 244, and they finished up on five for 344. One over left, they shook hands on day five. I mean, there's so much to talk through, but let's let's kind of go through it chronologically. It's the easiest way to do it. That first Australian innings, Will Pukowski makes his test debut, his long-awaited test debut. What did you make of it? Well, yeah, as you said, it was his third or fourth sort of go in the Australian squad and was finally named in the starting 11, and he looked really good. He looked fantastic. There are potentially still a couple of flaws in his batting technique, but they can easily be rectified, I feel. And he did give a couple of chances early on, and Rishabh Pant did give him those one or two extra lives quite early on. But regardless, a 50 on debut, a, a really entertaining performance, and, and the selectors, I feel, will have a bit of hope of the future after seeing both Will Pukowski and Cameron Green muster those maiden test 50s, and both of them were very different styles of knocks, but were entertaining and um, reassuring for the selectors, for sure. There was certainly plenty to like from Pukowski in that innings. Obviously, getting past that half-century mark in his first innings is always takes a lot of pressure off his shoulders that he knows he can he can perform at this level now. And since we've been waiting so long for this test debut, I mean, he's been in and around the squad for the best part of two years now. So it's fantastic to fi- finally see him earn that baggy green and disappointing to see him come off on day five uh, with what appeared to be a shoulder injury. He's been sent for scans. Cricket Australia have confirmed that, but we won't know until sort of Tuesday morning until what 
the result of that injury. So hopefully it doesn't leave him in doubt for the Gabba test because I think Australia will be wanting to pick and stick with Pukowski there. But maybe there's going to be some questions there as to who opens if Pukowski isn't available. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's funny that um, Pukowski's injury was somewhat overshadowed by the rest of the test match on that final day specifically. But spot on. Hopefully he is okay and can play... Um, at the Gabba, but we do forget that there is such a quick turnaround. It is three or four days before the next test match starts. So if it, even if there is a minor niggle, he, he might not be able to play in that fourth test match because he might be the first facing the first ball again. So he'll have to be at 100% because as shown by Warner, you can't pick players who are 90-95%. It doesn't pay off and it's, um, it certainly didn't work this time around. Well, let's talk about Warner. I mean... Obviously, he would be very disappointed with his output in this test. Um, that, that way he got out in the first innings was a very rash shot, and it was a shot of someone who was trying to play the ball that he didn't need to. He was trying to build his confidence back, but clearly it wasn't there to play that shot, and he nicked off to first slip. I mean, obviously he'll be better for it, I think. We, we both kind of agree on that, that now that he's got that first test back under his belt, he'll be better for the long run. But does that sort of form that he had in his Sydney test concern you going forward or do you think it's more just he's coming back from injury he's not at 100% he will get back to that form well he's been on the sidelines for so long he only had his first net session a couple of weeks ago at the MCG and I think when you are returning from an injury you do need to be at 100% um, it was only three days before the first day of the SCG test he was saying he couldn't even take catches on both sides of his body um, so limited was his movement in his body and um, it, it did show he he did say as well he couldn't really reach as far as he could when playing shots with the bat and I think that's part of the reason for that first dismissal he usually is able to play across the line and, and play through square early on but instead he nicked off to Mohamed Siraj quite early on and um, yeah started the Australian test match off quite poorly. Well, someone who was not poor in this match, who was at his very best, was Stephen Peter Devereux-Smith. I mean, that was as good an innings as we've seen from him. And while it wasn't the, the amount of runs that he's... It's nowhere near a record for him. The way he got those runs in that first innings, he just looked so composed. He looked so in control of his game. It was clear he had a message to send to essentially his haters that he had been reading everything that had been written about him, that people who were saying he was out of form, he was really keen to prove them wrong. And I don't know about you, Nick, but for the most part, there was obviously a lot of talk about Travis Head and Matthew Wade going to this test. But considering Steve Smith's form going into this test match, I don't think there was actually that much talk about him, but I guess I could be wrong. Maybe I wasn't reading in the same place as Smith was. Yeah, there weren't any talk. There wasn't any talk, rather, about you know should Steve Smith lose his place on the side. He he is too talented a player. But it was worrying that since returning from England in that Ashes series, he had been averaging 28, 29 with the bat, and that is not abysmal, but it's well below what we have come to expect from such a talented player. And yeah, I suppose he's found his hands again, as he famously said back in November, I think it was. He just seems to love batting at the SCG. I mean, two phenomenal centuries in the one-day series, and he comes back about a month later and compiles a classy century in the first innings and then 80-odd in the second knock, in the second innings, rather. He, he, he was remarkable and rightfully was named player of the match for that knock. And, um, yeah, him, him and Labuschagne, um, when batting together, they were quite something to behold. Uh, certainly an exciting prospect for the next five, six years of Australian cricket. I definitely think it was a, a good batting deck here that the Sydney Cricket Ground curators had put together. So it, it really favoured someone like a Smith, someone like a Labuschagne who enjoyed that, that ball coming off the surface a bit quicker, a bit harder onto the bat, which was really nice to see. Um, I guess one other thing we have to look at in terms of the Australian batting lineup is Matthew Wade. A lot of talk about his dismissal in the first innings. 
he got a good one in the second innings. I don't think we can talk too much about that because you can just get a good one that happens in cricket. But that first innings dismissal where he came down the wicket, he was he was looking really good. He had got to, I think, 13 or 14. He was looking dominant. He had hit Paul Vahari at, I think, short leg about three times coming back on a back foot pull shot. And he was probably getting a bit annoyed and frustrated himself. But then he comes down to the wicket needlessly to a ball, skies it straight to Jasper Brummer at mid-on. I mean... It was a real disappointing way for someone who, as experienced as him to get out. And the really disappointing part was that it was almost identical to his dismissal in the first innings at the MCG. He did the exact same thing, charging the spin bowler, not getting to the length of it and skying a relatively easy catch for mid-on. And, you know, it's understandable for test cricketers to make mistakes. As a batsman, you're only allocated one mistake most of the time. But this is someone who made a pretty abysmal error and then did the exact same thing the next test match. And that suggests that he, he, he's not a very good learner. He, he's not very resilient. He doesn't have the temperament and discipline that a lot of his teammates do, which at the age of 33 is pretty concerning because he's meant to be one of the most experienced players out there. So I'm sure he'll play at the Gabba. But if it's another failure, I mean, he's gone 12 consecutive home test innings without a 50. I mean, they might be looking elsewhere when Australia tours, will potentially tour South Africa in a couple of months' time. Again, it kind of showed our reliance on Marnus Labuschagne and Steve Smith when the going gets tough in that first innings, that they were the ones who stood up and the rest of the tail sort of faltered away a little bit where Australia probably should have gotten to 400-plus in all honesty, that they ended up 338. At the end of the day, it was enough. They were never in doubt of losing this test match for the most part. It got close at various stages on day five, but certain injuries kind of took that opportunity away from India. But... Australia would be left ruining that they didn't. They left a lot of runs out there in the first innings, and I think that's something that Justin Langer and the rest of the side will certainly look at as they prepare for the short turnaround at the Gabba. We have to look at the first Indian innings. I mean, that feels like an absolute age ago. There were three quite remarkable runouts, all for their own different reason. That Josh Hazelwood run out off of the Hari feels like it was two tests ago because so much has happened in this test match since. It was a really a good performance from the Australian bowlers after they kind of. Were, I wouldn't say disappointing in Melbourne because essentially they were let down by some fielding errors from some of the top order batsmen. But here the whole side came together. Their fielding was impeccable. I mean, the fact you get three runouts in an innings, that rarely happens. Was that the sort of performance they were going, okay, we've got a point to prove we want to be clinical here? Yeah, spot on. I don't think the bowlers were at all at fault in Melbourne. Uh, the fielders were to blame, for sure. The fielding was horrific, but certainly in the first innings, the fielding was not just an improvement. It was quite spectacular. Josh Hazelwood's run out. I mean, in one swift motion, diving low to his right, picking up the ball and flinging it at the stumps. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily as good as Pat Cummins at Adelaide Oval in 2018, but certainly a highlight for Josh Hazelwood's career. And even Manus Labuschagne sprinting after the ball at square leg with the helmet on, picking up and again in one motion spinning around and hitting the stumps from side on. It was remarkable. And the other run out, however, um, some will forget Ravi Ashwin in that first innings, he basically gave his own wicket away. He was ball watching. He very slowly lumbered down the pitch and then put in a pretty pitiful attempt at um, sliding his bat to make his ground. And it was in the end about one inch short. But um, regardless, yeah, Indian batting was not up to its best, but the Australian fielding was certainly the best it's been for quite a while. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether the injury that Ashwin's carrying had anything to do with that, whether he'd been suffering that yet. Obviously, we saw his wife tweet after this incredible 
draw on day five that he could barely walk overnight and things like that. So obviously he was carrying something in this match and whether that played a part in that run out, I'm not sure. But yeah, for the most part, I thought the line and length was fantastic from the Aussie bowlers. I thought Pat Cummins, again, just... I don't think he's bowled better in his career in terms of consistency because he just doesn't offer the batsman a bad ball, which is quite remarkable. They continue to get Pajara out with just incredible deliveries. And I feel I feel bad for him because... No one else in the Indian side seems to have gotten the deliveries that Bajara has gotten. And every time he's the unlucky one who gets out to absolute jaffers from whether it's a Cummins, whether it's a Hazelwood, the Australian bowlers have managed to get on top of him. And even though he did really well on day five, that they just have them have his measure still. I think he said after his first innings dismissal, he got the best ball of the innings from Pat Cummins. When Cummins did generate a bit of extra, pounce, uh, extra bounce off the pitch, and I think it... Uh, grabbed his glove on the way through to the slip cordon but yeah exactly right Josh Hazelwood in that second innings as well an absolute jaff and what was eventually the the final wicket of the day just seeming away enough to clip the top of off stump and we've seen that throughout the series as you said Pajara has just been quite unlucky but regardless he's been once again a stalwart at the pitch he's been nunning out long periods out there and there was a stage today when certainly Tim Payne and his comrades would have been thinking oh no not another Bajara marathon out here again. We, we suffered enough in 2018-19. Not again, please. Well, it wasn't Bajara today. It was Vahari and Ashman who were in the end the impenetrable wall. One thing we have to look at from the Indian first innings that kind of had ramifications for the rest of the match was Rishabh Pant getting injured. Um, obviously, he was injured, got a hit. Elbow, was it, from memory? Yeah, his um, elbow, his, I guess his forearm, I suppose, I think uh, was, was the main point of concern. But he, he did cop that blow from Pat Cummins and then wasn't able to fulfil his duties as the gloveman in Australia's second innings. Um, instead, Saha came in and did a superb job taking four catches, one of which was um, brilliant to d- dismiss Manus Labuschagne down the leg side. But it did sort of bring up some questions. I think Peter Lawler today did kind of ask the question of, well, if... Pant was unable to keep in the second innings, why was he able to bat? And not just bat, but bat superbly with a really classy 97 falling just short of his century. I mean, that doesn't seem necessarily very fair, but in saying that, it was within the laws of the game. They didn't, you know, abuse the rules by any means. I think they did just kind of manipulate it to sort of suit their own needs. And they are lucky that they do have a superb gloveman in um, Saha waiting in the wings to take over when that did happen. And Saha, I bet, will be a little bit filthy that the catches that he took in that Australian second innings didn't count to his record. Now, the thing that we disappointingly, I guess, have to look at out of Australia's second innings are the claims of abuse towards the Indian players. Um, Obviously, late on day three and post-play on day three, it was claimed by a number of the Indian players that racist abuse had been hurled towards them, I guess, by some of the fans in the Sydney cricket ground. So they sort of went up to the ICC referee, I think David Boone and a few others, and made them made them known. As a result, the umpires suggested that if they are to hear it again for the rest of the test match, that they immediately report it to the umpires and it would be dealt with. And that is what we saw on day four when Mohamed Siraj was fielding out in front of the Barongal stand. He clearly heard something. Obviously, we're not sure exactly what was heard at this stage. We've heard different reports and... It's not clear whether it was racist, but from the most reports we've seen and eyewitness accounts, it appears that they were not racist, these marks, but it it doesn't mean that what was heard on day three wasn't because the reports coming out of India are that 
terms were used such as a black dog and things like that which are absolutely horrendous to think that they could be used towards a touring team here in Australia but it's part of it's something that we have to accept and understand because it's the only way that we're going to eradicate this from society because it's it's clearly an issue it's clearly something that Indian teams have dealt with before as as Ravi Ashwin said post play on day 4 it's it's not a new issue especially here in Sydney it's something that is experienced a lot I mean, before you and I chat about it, Nick, let's hear what Ashwin had to say because I think you and I spoke about it after the press conference. It was pretty powerful stuff and also quite disheartening to hear how prevalent this racial abuse had been in Sydney. Look, I'd like to point out something. Uh, it is, I've been coming, this is my fourth tour to Australia and uh, uh, Sydney, especially here, has been, I've, we've had a few experiences even in the past. And uh, I think one or two times even the players have reacted and have got into trouble in the past and that's not because of the player, it is actually because of uh, the way the crowd has been speaking, especially the people on the lower, uh, uh, what am I, lower tier of the stands, uh, they have been quite nasty, they have been hurling abuses as well, uh, but this is a time where they've actually gone one step higher and uh, used racial abuses and uh, like, like we already mentioned, there was an official complaint that we lodged yesterday and the umpires also mentioned that we must bring it to their notice as it happens on the field uh, and then they'll be able to take action and uh, it is definitely not acceptable in this day and age where we've come through, a, a, we've seen a lot, right? We've evolved as a society and sometimes I think this roots back to the upbringing and the way one sees. So this must be definitely dealt with iron fists and uh, we must make sure that it doesn't happen again. All right, Nick, that's what Ashwin had to say and Clearly, it's something that they've dealt with before, not just on this tour, but on tours previously. I think he said he's been, essentially 10 years he's been coming out to Australia and he's experienced some form of abuse every single time. My personal belief is that if you're paying to come to the cricket, to come watch international test match cricket, there is no room for any sort of abuse. People seem to be going, well, it's not racist, but that's okay. I don't think that's okay. I don't think just because you've paid money to sit in a seat 10, 15 metres away from a, a player means you can hurl abuse at them. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just me, if that's just something in me that's going, we need to eradicate this from not only society, cricket, but from society. But I just don't get why people think that, oh, as long as it's not racist, it's okay. As long as it's a bit of banter, it's okay. These players aren't coming out here to cop abuse. They're coming out here to play cricket and the abuse they cop... I mean, we'll talk about later what Tim Payne was saying on the field on day five and setting a bad example there. But the fact that fans are getting involved with this, I, I find pretty disgusting. It is very reminiscent of the Adam Good saga from five, six years ago where, you know, obviously he was relentlessly booed every game of the latter stage of his career. And those boos were validated by arguments of we've paid our ticket, we can say what we want, which honestly seems pretty ridiculous I mean we can't really speculate into what was said um, on days three and four of this test match because it is under um, police investigation and obviously we don't know exactly what was said at this stage but uh, regardless if it was racial or not it's just such a disgusting part of Australian culture that we well most Australian cricket fans consider it okay to yell abuse at touring players um, all, all the time I mean Ashwin himself summed it up perfectly for the 10 years he was trying to move into the boundary further and further so he could get away from the abuse and the taunts um, specifically from the Sydney crowds which is honestly embarrassing I mean it's really embarrassing for Sydney spectators that that's what touring players feel when they come to this city and 
at the same time, these Indian players have been through a lot. Some of them have been away from friends and family for five, six months. They've been inside biosecurity bubbles and under strict protocols for several months as well. Mohamed Siraj, the player who obviously brought to the umpire's attention the incident on day four, his father passed away at the beginning of this tour. He couldn't go home for the funeral because of the travel restrictions. And before this test match even started during the national anthem, there were tears streaming down his eyes. Um, we don't exactly know what, why, but we'd assume it was because of just the, the emotion of representing your country and his father not being able to see it and celebrate it. And then, obviously, he's made a huge sacrifice along with so many other Indian players. And the crowd's thank you is to allegedly abuse them and, and yell and heckle on the field, which is pretty disgusting. I'm glad that Cricket Australia and Tim Payne and Justin Langer have all come out in the sort of the 24 hours post the incident, that they've taken a strong stance, that they, they won't be standing for this stuff, that if it's found that any of this abuse is racial and that the perpetrators are identified, they will essentially be barred from any Cricket Australia events for essentially indefinitely was the word Nick Hockley used, which means they won't be allowed back to the cricket ever, which I think is a really good thing. Um, but yeah, personally, whether it's racial or not, I don't think it's on. I think it's pretty pathetic that if you're coming here, sitting in a Hawaiian shirt, drinking beers and going, you know what, instead of enjoying this incredible contest that's happening out on the field between two of the best test cricket teams in the world, that you feel like you have to add to that by abusing the players who have sacrificed so much to come to Australia, especially Siraj, as you said, with the passing of his father, that you feel like, you know what I can add to this environment, this incredible spectacle? Abuse and trying to get under the skin of the opposition players. Sure, we have got banter and things like that. The, the famous line from the Test documentary, there's banter and then there's abuse from Justin Langer. And that is valid. But if someone has had a complaint the night before and then you continue to abuse him and say things towards him that clearly it's not meant to be friendly it's not meant to be a bit of fun they're trying to get under his skin I think it's just pathetic and I'm glad that it's something that's being dealt with and I'm hopeful that the Gabba we won't see anything similar and that it's something that will eventually be stamped out for this game from that will be stamped out from cricket because it's just it doesn't have a place in cricket and it doesn't have a place in society on a brighter note on day four the Cam Green Show. Cam Green has finally arrived at test level. An incredible innings of 80-odd where he blasted four sixes, including two in a row, off Mohamed Siraj. While a lot of the headlines are unfortunately on things that were happening off the field, it was fantastic to see Green firing at test level because it was a formidable knock. What's really exciting is I feel this was just a glimpse into what Cameron Green can provide Australian cricket fans. I mean, it was an innings of sort of two parts, wasn't it? The first half was very patient, uh, a lot of discipline. You know, the new ball came on and he survived through that tough period as well. And then when I assume Payne told him that a declaration was coming up fairly soon, he switched gears and, and went on the attack. He started obviously clearing the front leg and using those strong levers of his and, and sending it into the crowd. It was... Oh, it really was phenomenal, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to see how he can continue that, the Gabba, and throughout, well, hopefully the next 15 years of his international career. I want to put something to you. Green to five at the Gabba. Thoughts? Uh, no, not yet. At some stage, I can see him going up to five and four, but he is still, of the six specialist batsmen, the least experienced. Um, even Pukowski's had a couple more seasons of Sheffield Shield cricket, so yeah, I'd keep him at six for now, but in the future, certainly there's a spot available from at some, at some stage at four and five. 
Fair enough. Okay, we've got to go into this final innings. Let's try and wrap this up and be quick because we could talk about it forever. So much happened. India set 407 to win. Essentially four sessions that they had to bat a little bit more because they were making up time for play lost on day one. They got very close in the end. Five for 344. I mean, let's start here on day five. The incredible innings from Rishabh Pant. We kind of spoke about it before, the 97. I mean, that is why he's in the side, because they know that he he's an incredibly talented batsman and he can score runs quickly. And at one stage, he was putting so much pressure on Australia. They were just putting men back on the boundary and just hoping for a wicket, which he eventually gifted to them. It was a bit like um, Vrinder Sehwag at some stage, wasn't it? He he came in and was sort of a... a um, he was very patient to start off. I think he was five not out of his first 30 balls. But then... I think quite like Cameron Green, he switched that gear and, and just started smacking everything. Bit of a swashbuckling performance from him and very entertaining, but was also really against what we expected to see from the Indians today. We expected to see a lot of defence, a lot of patience, uh, a lot of grit, but no, he came out and it was an explosive cameo. So congratulations to him. He now averages something ridiculous at the SCG, something in the hundreds I can only assume. And a really coming-of-age performance from him as well, considering he had suffered that injury on day three. But the question mark is still around his keeping. We still are yet to be convinced that he is a test wicketkeeper. And, I mean, is there a spot for him as a specialist batsman? Potentially. Um, but at, at this stage, you know, he, that's his big big concern, the wicketkeeping. He dropped two catches in the first innings and took zero for the match. He was then very ably assisted in terms of batting by Hanuma Vahari and Ravi Ashwin. Just some of the numbers from their incredible partnership. They came in at the 89th over. They faced the rest of the innings, essentially. So that was 256 deliveries. Add some extras on top of that. You're looking 260, 265 innings, 265 balls that they faced. They only scored 62 runs from that time. So essentially 200 balls were dot balls in that time. Ashwin finished on 39 not out off 128 balls, while Vahari finished on 23 not out off 161 balls. I think at one stage he was 7 not out off 124 balls. It was, I think Rick Finlay put out the tweet that it's the most balls ever taken to be still on 7 or some ridiculous stat like that. Um, How good was that partnership? And I want to put it to you. How disappointing, I guess, were Australia in not trying to find a second or third option to to take that wicket? Yeah, I, I guess the, the Australian side of things is a, is a different matter, but certainly in terms of what Vahari and Ashwin did, I mean, they were the walking wounded. We've now seen in that tweet from Ashwin's wife how sore he was the night before and the injury he was battling, but Vahari's injury was so evident and clear. Very early on, he went through for the single and had a hamstring complaint. We all thought at one stage he was going to go off, but... He powered through in what was ultimately a, a game-saving knock. I mean, there, was, there were times when, obviously, they couldn't run between the wickets as well as, as they would have liked. There were times when easy threes, or at least quick threes, were just being walked through for easy singles. And there were times when they were smacking the ball through the, the inner field and piercing the gap, but they would just stand still as the Australian fielders gave chase. It was quite bizarre at some stages, and, and that is obviously part of the reason that they didn't score as many runs um, as we would have expected. But... It was, an, it was a partnership that showed why Test cricket is so beautiful and so brilliant and, and separates it from the T20 game. It's, it is a game of resilience, of, of fierce determination and of concentration. And they really were the walking wounded out there and, and they did it. They, they secured the draw and we're now one all going into the final match. From a lot of commentators, there was a sense of inevitability that Australia was going to clean up 
India this morning that I know Ricky Ponting said it was going to be for about 200 or so. I think Trent Copeland on one stage said maybe even less than 200. But India proved people wrong today, and I think that was what was so impressive about their performance. And I hope they carry it on to the Gabba, not only because I predicted India to take home the Border Gavaskar Trophy, but, but, but because it was just so fantastic to watch and it was a fantastic display of Test cricket. Two parts of the Australian bowling innings I want to talk about. Firstly, Nathan Lyon. I think there's a sense of expectation, especially when it comes to an innings like that, where it gets to day five, it's meant to be a wicket that's deteriorated a bit. That's when Nathan Lyon typically typically stands up for Australia. He got two for 114, and there were two pretty crucial wickets, but for the most part, he didn't have the success today that we thought he would. Is that down to maybe a pitch that didn't deteriorate as much as we thought it was going to, or could we say maybe we're a bit disappointed with Lyon's output this test? I'd certainly say a mix of the two. The pitch wasn't what we expected it to be. It wasn't crumbling and deteriorating like we would have expected. It was almost like a day three pitch, I felt. Um, it certainly still offered plenty for the batsman. But at the same time, I don't think Lyon bowled at his best today because when he panics and when he starts to sort of go into his shell a little bit while bowling, he seems to bowl faster. And we saw that today. He, he threw down a lot of fast deliveries and... What he seemed to forget is how valuable he is when he utilises his flight and overspin. I mean, the delivery that got Indian captain Ajinka Rahane, a crucial wicket early in the day, was the slowest delivery he had bowled to Rahane in the entire second innings. And I feel like once a couple of partnerships started developing, he did sort of go into a shell a bit and tuck it down a bit fast. And so he wasn't at his best, but the pitch didn't necessarily help him either. There weren't many gremlins out there today. The next thing we have to look at is Tim Payne. Three dropped catches in the second innings. Personally, I was quite disappointed in kind of the banter that he and Matt Wade kind of started with towards the end there, trying to get under Ashwin's skin, obviously trying to rattle him as India got closer and closer to a draw. It was a bad look. It's something that he came out pretty quickly and said, not only that, but his outburst at umpire Paul Wilson, he was very disappointed by and he knows it was a bad look. He's also going to be 15% less of his match fee in his pocket as a result of that. But did we kind of see today that when Australia had their backs against the wall, that we saw a side of the Australian team that we haven't seen for maybe two, three years, that we don't really want to be seen because it was a bit disappointing. And I think that was what how everyone viewed it at home as well, that the, the remarks that Payne was saying behind the stumps to Ashwin to try and get under his skin, to talk about IPL contracts, to just say that none of his teammates like him. It was disappointing that we had to stoop to that level and, I mean, at the end, Payne should have been focusing on his own wicket-keeping. Yeah, spot on. I mean, after those comments the very next over, he dropped a catch. I mean, I mean, <laughs> talk about karma. That was the prime example right there, but as you said, it was really ugly and, and really, really disappointing and Obviously, all the media outlets can report on what Payne said, and kids are going to read what Payne said. And this is someone who, for two, three years, has been the poster boy for Australian cricket. He was meant to lead Australia out of the, I suppose, the dark ages of ball tampering in a, in a series which was characterised by really ugly incidents and, 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 and spats like we saw today. It, it was a side of Australia we haven't seen in a while, and I think, as you said, mate, it's, it's something I hope not to see for a long time to come because... 
I mean, Payne had a terrible test match. Not just that incident there, but with the gloves, he dropped three catches. With the bat, he didn't contribute much. And yeah, the 15% fine for that ugly confrontation with um, the umpire in, in on, on day two as well. I mean, for two test matches now, he's blown up about the DRS, a system we've had in place for eight, nine years, and it's hardly changed since. And all of a sudden, he's got a massive issue with it. I mean, at some stage, he has to sort of get past it a little bit and actually concentrate on his own game, as we um, potentially saw today with those drop catches. Well, let's hear what Payne had to say in his post-match presser after day five. No, look, we all know that, that the stump mics are a part of the broadcast. It's it's great to bring the viewers, um, you know, that close and to be able to hear it. Unfortunately, I um, probably set a pretty poor example with just with my use of language. Um, and I'm certainly disappointed with myself after I heard that. So, um, yeah, we know we've got to be careful. Um, you know, I've known and had... Uh, Paul Wilson umpired me for, for a long time. I certainly didn't mean to be disrespectful to him or anything like that. It was just a heat of the moment. Um, audible obscenity, I think I've been done for. So, um, yeah, like I said, I need to be better than that. I know that the stump mics are on and I know that that's part of the game and there's lots of kids um, watching the Australian test team and I, I need to set a better example than that. You know, like we do want to take the game close to the spectators and, and fans as we possibly can. At times when the stump mics are on, that is going to happen. Unfortunately, that's part of it. Um, yeah, we try our best, but we're not perfect. And occasionally, you know, if the worst thing that we've done is, is let the odd F-bomb go, then I think we're going okay. All right, Nick, any closing remarks on the Sydney test? I think we just we saw as well from Mitchell Stark... Um, both today and yesterday, a side of him we haven't seen in a while in which he was bowling very wayward and wasn't utilising the new ball as well as we would have liked, which was shown when later on day five, when Australia did take the new ball, Payne gave it to Hazelwood and Cummins. Stark was neglected the chance to utilise the new ball because he was bowling a lot down the leg side, a lot short. He didn't have the consistency we saw last season. He was superb last season. So he was well below his best um, in this match, but hopefully he can bounce back at the Gabba where obviously the extra ba- bounce and pace will suit him quite a lot. The Gabbertoir always brings the best out of the Australian fast bowlers. Last thing I want to talk about out of this match, it is fantastic to see how much money was raised for the McGrath Foundation. Just going through some of the numbers, they sold over 150,000 of those virtual seats, which was a fantastic initiative for people who couldn't get to the ground. They only got 40,000 here across the five days. So this was a fantastic way to supplement that. And as a result, they raised $3,012,340, which I believe is their largest ever total from a pink test. And that is superb. It is also, they're claiming it as the record for the largest ever sporting crowd in Australia, even though they weren't actually here because they sold the seats technically. So, but I, I liked that initiative in terms of that was a good way to get people to get on board. So that was fantastic to see. And obviously a great initiative that always comes out of the Sydney test. All right, we'll take a quick break, then come back with a little bit of BBL action and wrap up the podcast. Nick, Big Bash, I mean, we've been here at the cricket the last five nights, so essentially haven't watched too much of it besides maybe the replays or whatever's been on TV when we got home. But I think one thing you and I are both very passionate about, we're going to start the charge, hashtag DC for WC. Dan Christian should be in Australia's T20 World Cup squad. Discuss. 
Absolutely, he has to be. I've said this before, potentially even on this podcast, but the Australian selectors, for the T20 side at least, have this really unfortunate habit of picking opening batsmen for the middle order. So the likes of Marcus Stoinis and Darcy Short being chucked into the middle order where they've not played any T20 cricket. And I think what they really need in the Australian side is a specialist number six at number six. And correct me if I'm wrong, but no one has done that better than Daniel Christian. And not just this season, for eight or nine years now, he is not only a great batsman, but can contribute plenty with the ball as well. So I would like to see him in that World Cup squad. Yes, he'll be 38 years old, but I know in the past they've picked older. Brad Hogg was 41 when he played in the T20 World Cup a few years ago. So there's no excuse that Dan Christian can't do the same. Well, and fantastic news for you, Nick, and our campaign got on the the Dan Christian press conference today and asked him whether he would put his hand up for selection for the Australian side and it was a pretty resounding yes have a listen I'd, I'd love to play yeah for sure I, I feel like um, my my opportunities for Australia in the, in the past have been limited and, and I still feel like I'm playing good enough cricket to be able to contribute so if it, if it came about then yeah that'd be fantastic but um uh, just It sounds really cliche, but I'm just focusing on trying to win some games for the Sixers and, and we'll see how we go. There you go, Nick. That's what he had to say. He feels like he's hasn't had enough opportunities in the Australian side and he wants another go. So he has to be there, right? Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Hashtag DC4WC. Get on board. I'll tweet that at some stage this week, I'm sure. And um, hopefully if he can continue this and even more importantly, if the Sixers can win a title, then he'll certainly be at least a discussion point for selectors. I mean, he needs to be there. I'm sick of seeing the likes of Stoinis and Mitch Marsh not utilise their chances in the Australian side. I feel like Dan Christian will at least be able to do a bit better. Well, that's where we're going to leave the Big Bash because we're in that kind of awkward middle stage where not much has happened. Everything still seems to be the same. There's a game on every night, so it'll still be the same in about a week's time. So we will come back to it then. Time for a Savage Seed. It is getting dark out here at the SAG, so we better wrap this up nice and quick. I'm going to change things up. I'm going to go first this week, Nick. I'm looking ahead to the fourth test. I'm looking at Australia's batting lineup, and I'm making a big change. Moses Enriquez is coming back into the test side. Get him in there. Get the big Mo into the Australian test side for the Gabba test against India. Is this for Matthew Wade, I'm presuming? Absolutely. Look, I wouldn't actually mind that too much. Um, my only concern is, I think, we need to be looking ahead to the future. And Moses Henriques, what is he, 36 now? He's at best got two years ahead of him in, in the Australian test side if he was to make a return. But in saying that, he's played three Sheffield Shield games this summer and scored two centuries. He's been a fantastic batsman for New South Wales for at least um, 18 months now, and he deserves that chance for sure. And I think if they were going to make a change, that would be the change they'd make, and as well as potentially Marcus Harris coming in for uninjured Will Pekofsky if that does come to be but yeah I, I wouldn't mind that too much but I, I think if they were to make a change like that oh, for the thinking ahead Travis Head really I mean he didn't have a great start to the summer but he's been a great cricketer for many many years and also was in some good form in the Sheffield Shield so but I wouldn't mind that yeah bring back Moses Henriquez why not I guess from my perspective I agree with the looking forward um especially if you're looking at replacing someone like a Travis Head. In this, the third, going from the second test to the third test, if they were replacing Travis Head, I wanted it to be for someone who was a bit younger and had more to prove. So they brought in Will Pukowski essentially as his replacement. So I like that. But in this test, I think you'd be looking at replacing Matthew Wade. And if you're replacing Matthew Wade, 
in a must-win test match to win the Border Gavaskar Trophy, I think you have to pick your best side. And over the last few years in Sheffield Shield cricket, I don't think there's been anyone better at that sort of number four, number five position than Moses Enriquez. So for one test, even if it's one test, Moses Enriquez is the sort of guy who'd go, look, I'm happy to play one test and never play test cricket again. Obviously, he'd love to be get an extended run in the, in the team, but he's such a team guy that he wouldn't care. If he's getting to play test cricket, he would make the most of that opportunity. So... Yeah, I would love to see him get a, a shot for Australia again and bring in bring him into number five in that test side because I thought he was fantastic. He was surprisingly fantastic in the limited over series against India. He brought a lot more than I what, think what people were expecting and I think he'd do the same in the test side. Yeah, spot on. One of the nice guys of Australian cricket and he never, like Glenn Maxwell, he never got a chance to play a test match in Australia. And even when he did play in the subcontinent, he was, he was relatively impressive with those um, few chances he had. So, yeah, if he does play, that'd be really, really great. It'll be a great story and a, and a nice way to sort of bookend the, the twilight of his career, I suppose. Don't get me started on Glenn Maxwell. If you want to read my thoughts on that, head over to Sporting News because I penned a little article saying, how have we not given Glenn Maxwell more of a go in the test side? But that is for another rainy day. Nick, let's wrap it up. Do you have a savage seed for me as we... Round off a, a wonderful week in Sydney. Indeed I do. Indeed I do. So you penned a little article yesterday and um, I couldn't help but notice one very strong omission from your uh, top 100 female athletes list. And yes, yes. My question to you is, where was Rachel Haynes? The Savage Seed is Rachel Haynes was robbed. Okay, well, I will put this out there that someone else did come at me on Twitter for this and if you haven't seen it, I, I penned a... Top 100 Australian female athletes, current athletes. Uh, a lot of people have been going, Where, where's such and such? Where's Kathy Freeman? This isn't meant to be current athletes. It's meant to show how many incredible female athletes are, are doing amazing things domestically and around the world right now. There are so many names I left off that list. I'll be honest, I had probably the entire Australian women's cricket team in that list, probably all 15 from that World Cup squad at one stage. But I set myself the criteria of going maximum of eight per sport because I wanted to spread the love around. I wanted to be able to kind of go, there's so many sports that women are doing amazing things in. So I wanted to make sure they got recognized as well. Rachel Haynes was ninth on my list in terms of who are doing amazing things. And I know that is incredibly harsh. She's the vice captain of the Australian women's team. And it's so incredibly harsh to, to put her just outside of that list. And I was saying to someone that I put Molyneux, in more because of potential I guess and also that she offers a bit with bat and ball but in terms of form right now I think Rachel Haynes is definitely one of Australia's best batters but yeah she was she was an unlucky one maybe she was 101 on my list but I could have made probably three separate top 100 lists and don't you start as well Nick I've had so much so much people so many people going oh what about this person what about this person I absolutely love that but it's making me go why didn't I include them in the t- in the su- in the list in the first place? Look, all I want to say is, you know, I love Sophie Molyneux. I'm a big fan of Sophie Molyneux, but let's not forget that Rachel Haynes did lead Australia to an Ashes victory just three or four seasons ago, and you have neglected her. So I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just going to I'm just going to say I think she was robbed. Look, that's fair enough. I, I love Rachel Haynes. I love the whole Australian women's cricket team, and. In another world, I would have included probably the entire WBBL in that list, but it wasn't to be. And look, maybe if I make another list in a year's time, Rachel Haynes will be there. But 
Who knows? If you haven't checked it out, make sure to go check it out. It's on my Twitter and also Sporting News because I've loved the debate that's come from it and that so many people are going, what about X person? What about Y person? Because there are just so many incredible female athletes. I want to quickly put to you, who do you reckon is Australia's number one female athlete? Oh, I think there's a lot of favouritism for me to say Elise Perry because I'm a cricket fanatic and I've been a big fan of hers for over a decade now but what Sam Kerr is achieving in football is pretty remarkable I mean to be striker of Chelsea like that in itself is something pretty special and um, I think in two or three years time when Australia does host the Women's Football World Cup I think in 2023 I think we'll finally realise how special a talent Sam Kerr is so I think mate, between those two Sam Kerr and Elise Perry I mean Elise Perry was the ICC Women's Cricketer of the Decade I mean that's also pretty remarkable so I'm, I'm going to just sit on the fence and say those two like you I think Perry probably just edges it for me because of maybe our cricket bias but I also absolutely love what Ash Barty has done in tennis I think to be so, someone so young dominating on the world stage Nick is looking at me going why didn't I mention her and now I look silly but no I, I think it, for me it's a dead heat between Elise Perry and Ash Barty that's where we're going to lead the podcast. That is where we are going to leave the Sydney Test Match. What an incredible five days of action we have had. Make sure, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Apple, Spotify, we're everywhere. Leave a rating, leave a comment, share it with your friends and family. It really is much appreciated. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Since our last podcast, I got TikTok and I've had a look. It's, it's great what you're doing there. I wish I could contribute, but I know nothing about TikTok other than I have an account and I now follow one profile which is our own I suppose unlike Donald Trump we will not be banned off social media anytime soon so make sure to follow us there Nick thank you as always for joining me this week mate thank you for for a great week and uh, helping me through my first test match I'm, I'm exhausted I can only imagine what the players are feeling right now but yes thank you it's been it's been a great week that is all for this episode we'll catch you next week